Let's pray together and then plunge into our Bible teaching today. Holy Father, we have been to the throne room, lifted up in praise and prayer. And now through proclamation, we wish to go right there again through Holy Scripture. These we've honored today, all the friends that are reconnecting, thank you for homecoming. We said it already. We say it again. It isn't this homecoming that stirs our hearts the most deeply. It's that other homecoming that we're homesick for. And that's why we worship you. That's why Jesus is so precious to us. May the teaching of Holy Scripture today, in its own way, through the mighty Spirit, engage our minds, address our hearts, and call us to respond. We cannot hear what we are about to hear and not respond. So, in advance, dear God, be at work on my heart and all of our hearts so that we will know how best to respond for the glory of the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. If you slept through the last two weeks, then what I'm about to remind you of from the headlines of world news will come as a surprise to you. I I don't think it will, however. And I want to take this event... I want to take this event as a neutral event to become the pivot point for today's Bible teaching. Two weeks ago, addressing a German academic audience. Andrews University knows all about academic audiences. Two weeks ago, the beloved spiritual leader of an entire communion of one billion followers, Christians, Pope Benedict XVI, two weeks ago, quoted from an obscure Byzantine emperor who ever heard Emmanuel II, but quoted a conversation that the emperor was having with an anonymous Persian philosopher. And I don't suppose he knew the veritable firestorm that that single quotation would erupt in a world of 1.4 billion followers of Islam. Now let me read the quotation to you. The, The emperor speaking to the philosopher. Show me just what Muhammad brought that was new, and there you will find things only evil and inhuman, such as his command to spread by the sword the faith he preached. End quote. Now look it. It doesn't matter. Whether the, whether the quotation was calculated or ill-advised, it doesn't matter. It stirred up the reaction. And the good news is that the pontiff met this last week and has achieved, I hope, a, a sort of reconciliation with the leaders of the Muslim world. But, now leaving that behind, the more pressing query for those of us who are students of Bible prophecy is this. Is Islam... Is Islam in apocalyptic prophecy? Is it a part of some sort of end-time history? That's a fair question to raise. In fact, last spring, we we took a survey, you remember, uh, and asked, okay, if if you had a sermon or two you'd like to hear preached, what would you like to have the pastor preach? And I went over all of these over the summer. And I was amazed how many times the question came up. Is Islam in Bible prophecy? And so I spent a good hunk of the intervening weeks this summer and into fall wrestling, pondering, 
praying and after much study and reflection, I believe the answer is yes. I'd like to show you why I believe that. Open your Bible, please, to the Bible's last book, the book, the Apocalypse, the book of Revelation. Please find the Bible's last book, Revelation chapter 18. I want you to strap your seatbelt on because we're going to fly through this study. But I hope it will be helpful for you. For some of you, the content will be the first time you've ever thought of this. I want you to brood over it. For others of you, it's going to be controversial. You're going to challenge, perhaps, fine by me. But I want us to think for a few moments. Revelation chapter 18. That would be page 832. If you didn't bring a Bible, please grab our Pew Bible. It's the New King James Version. It will be the same translation that I'll be preaching out of this morning. And so we can follow along quite nicely together. If you have your own Bible, by, by all means, find Revelation 18. Just one verse. Revelation 18, verse 1. And after these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. And the earth was illuminated with his glory. You're saying, hey, wait a minute, preacher. I don't see a word about Islam in this verse. And of course, you're right. In fact, you know what, Dwight? I don't even see a word about the East in this verse. And in fact, you're wrong. For the last two Sabbaths, those of you who have not been here, we have actually been in this uh, single-lined apocalyptic prediction. And in fact, we discovered that John heavily, heavily dipped into the well of the Old Testament as he wrote the Apocalypse. Some scholars believe that nearly every phrase in the book of Revelation is borrowed from the Old Testament. Let me show you where this comes from in the Old Testament. Ezekiel chapter 43, verse 2. Great vision. In the Old, Old Testament, and behold, Ezekiel writes, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. Key word in this teaching series, east is a key word. We're noticing the apocalyptic prophecies connected to the east. Now, his voice, okay, the God of Israel came from the way of the east. His voice was like the sound of many waters and the earth shone with his glory. No question that John went deep into that well of Ezekiel, grabbed that phrase and inserted it into Revelation chapter 18, verse 1, which is a great help for us because now we know the glory that floods the earth just before the return of Christ. And by the way, the plagues come in uh, verse 4 of Revelation 18. So we know this is just before Jesus returns. That glory is not the glory of an angel. It's the glory of Almighty God Himself, the God of Israel. Glory that shines, by the way, in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. All right. So, let's put Revelation 18, 1 back up. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. There will be an explosion of divine glory, a global revival at the end of time. And the question that is begging to be asked right now is, will that revival include the 1.5 adherents of the religion of Islam? Will the revival include Islam? I have a feeling in your heart you already know the answer. In fact, I wish you'd jot it down right now. Pull out the study guide, please, that is in your worship bulletin today. A study guide today that I hope you will take home and cogitate over. And by the way, if you, three of you came in with one bulletin, just hold your hand up. We have ushers that are as fast as lightning here, and they will get a study guide to you. And while they're doing that, those of you watching on television right now, let me put our website on the screen, and you can get this identical study guide. There it is www.pmchurch.tv Go to that website. This particular teaching series is entitled Rumors from the East. And you want to click on to the teaching Star Rising Over Islam. 
Click on there and it'll say study guide. You click study guide, you'll have the identical study guide that we're going to now use in our teaching this morning. By the way, I just want to say this to the alumni. You can wander anywhere on the earth, but you can get, you can get home to Pioneer through the Internet. Use that web address you have at the top of your study guide. You can download these teachings to your MP3 players. You can download video streaming. You can have the study guides. Share the journey with us. This series is only about half over. Okay, so jot it down, please. Right there at the top of the study guide, will Islam be included in the final glory that floods the earth, the glory of Christ? Jot it down. The sun, the S-O-N, capital S-O-N, the sun must rise over Islam too. All right? It's got to rise over Islam. Now, I'm not going to apologize, but for the next three minutes, one minute for statistics and two minutes for the story of Muhammad, your head is going to be down because you're going to be right nonstop. My face will not be on that screen. There will only be answers on that screen. And we're going to fly right now. All right? But I want you to get a feel for how big Islam is on this planet. How dare we think they'll not be included given these statistics. Here we go. Grab that pen. Like Judaism and Christianity, Islam is classified as an Abrahamic, monotheistic, one God, monotheistic religion, polytheistic Hinduism, monotheistic Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. All right. Number two, it is estimated, write this down, there are 1.4 billion adherents today making Islam the second largest religion in the world. Keep writing. It is the second largest religion in the UK. That would be the United Kingdom and Europe. And it is fast becoming the second largest religion right here at home in the U.S. of A. Jot that down. The majority. Now, this comes as a surprise to people. The majority of Muslims are not Arabs. Only 20 percent of Muslims originate from Middle Eastern countries. They're all over the world. Keep your pen moving. The largest Muslim nation on earth. What do you think it is? It's Indonesia. Jot it down. In fact, note this, Muslims are a majority in 45 African and Asian countries. In fact, a United Nations demographic report forecasts, isn't this something, that Muslims will represent at least half, half of the global birth rate after the year 2055. One out of every two babies will be born after 2055 to an Islamic home. Half in 50 years. Take a look at this map. Take a look at this map, will you? There is global Muslim Islam. There it is. Isn't that amazing? The sun must rise over Islam. You think God's going to leave 1.5 billion people out of a strategic end move? Hardly. Let me quickly give you now a two-minute scenario. You can stop, start your stopwatch now because it's a two-minute description of the life of Muhammad. All right? Keep that pen moving. Write it down. Don't start the clock yet. I need to tell you that I went over here to James White Library. I tell you, we are so fortunate to have that wonderful institution on this campus. And I checked five books out on Islam. And I've been reading those books. I'm indebted in particular to George W. Braswell Jr.'s volume, What You Need to Know About Islam and Muslims. Okay, let's go. Let's tell the story of Muhammad. You've heard of Muhammad. Here we go. Write it down, please. Number one. By the way, did you get study guides up here? Huh? Do you want some? Okay, ushers, can I get some study guides up here, please? Yeah, Jeff, bless you. Because I just uh, realized I forgot to make sure that our musicians that have blessed us so richly this morning. 
While you guys are getting that, let me go ahead and go. Because have you already started the stopwatch? Let's go. Muhammad, number one. Muhammad was born into the Kurash tribe in Mecca around 570 A.D. Jot that down, 570 A.D. His tribesmen, by the way, were keepers of the Kaaba, a place of offerings to various deities. They were polytheistic, multiple gods. Muhammad's parents died when he was a boy. He was adopted by his uncle. We know very little about his childhood. We do know that at the age of 25, he married a wealthy widow merchant whose name was Khadijah. Now you start writing and you won't quit. In 610 A.D., at the age of 40, while meditating in a cave outside Mecca, he received a vision from the angel Gabriel during the month of Ramadan. Do you understand? This is the month of Ramadan right now. You know, it. it's the month where they fast between sunrise and sunset. No food. All right. So at 610, he got the, uh, the first of a series of 12 years of visions. Now, notice this. Fascinating. Unable to read or write, Muhammad was instructed by the angel to recite the visions given over the next 12 years. Thus, Muhammad began to preach these revelations from Allah, the name of the one God, one God, Allah, to the wayward tribes of Mecca. But his message, keep writing, his message of monotheism met strong resistance in Mecca, resulting in Muhammad's flight, the great Hijrah, to Medina on July 16, 622, the most famous date in Islam. If you want to impress your Islamic friends, you can say, I know. I know about July 16, 622. I know about the great flight to Medina. All right. There in, in Medina or Medina, he further developed his new religion of Islam, adopting Abraham as patriarch, who's Abraham, father of Ishmael, father of the Arabs, first and most prominent Hanif, the obedient one or Muslim. And then keep, keep going in 630. I don't think you write down for this one. In 630, Muhammad and his forces retook the city of Mecca. I want to take a look at Mecca. It has become the supreme city of Islam today. And by the way, that's at the that's at the time of the annual pilgrimage. They retook the city in 630 AD. 20 years now, important point, 20 years after his death in 632, Muhammad's followers transcribed, collected, and codified his recited visions into the Quran. No longer spelled with a K, it's with a Q. Note that please, with a Q, Quran. Within a century of his death, an Islamic state would stretch from the Atlantic Ocean in the west to Central Asia in the east, eventually forming one of the largest and most powerful empires in the world. There it is. Two minute synopsis. Okay. Now, you have the statistics. You have the synopsis of the origins. Now the controversial question. Please think with me now. Could it be... Could it be that God had a hand in the origins of this monotheistic religion among the tribes of Arabia 14 to 15 centuries ago through the prophet Muhammad? Could there be divine guidance that raised up this religion? Before you give a knee-jerk, Western-biased reaction, I want you to take a look at some more biblical evidence. We're going to go to a story that is so familiar you can recite it. But there are three realities in this story that you have never seen before. I promise you, you have never seen these before. They were new for me too. Go from the Bible's last book to the Bible's first book. Go, let's go to the book of Genesis. Everybody knows the story of Genesis chapter 16. Take a look at this. Genesis 16. Be prepared. 
Three firsts right here. Genesis chapter 16, let's pick it up in verse 1, please. Now Sarai, before she became Sarah, all right? Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go to my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abraham heeded the voice of his wife. All right? There's all kinds of temptations to digress and talk about the subjects that come to mind right here, but I'm not going to. I'm not saying a word. Not a word. I have to go home and have dinner today. All right. Okay. So, Abraham obeys his wife. He goes into Hagar. She becomes pregnant. And when Hagar gets pregnant, guess who gets jealous? Duh. <laughs> and so, where do we go? We drop down to verse 5, please. And then Sarah, I love this. Sarah said to Abraham, My wrong be upon you, boy. I gave my maid into your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes, and the Lord judged between me and you. So Abraham, Abraham wisely said to Sarai, Indeed, your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. And when Sarai dealt harshly with her, Hagar fled from her presence. All right, now be prepared. You've never seen this before. Three firsts in sacred history. Here we go. Number, verse 7. Now the angel, capital A, angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness by the spring on the way to Shur. You see that? Capital A, angel. Write it down. This is the first time in sacred history that the capital A, angel, shows up to anybody in the book of Genesis. The first time is to an Egyptian Made. Okay? The first time, keep your pen moving. This marks the first time in sacred history where the divine I am, I am. Because the angel of the Lord appeared in that burning bush in Exodus 3, and Jesus said, by the way, didn't, didn't Jesus announce before Abraham was, I am? The pre incarnate Christ, the I am, shows up. First time in history to an Egyptian handmaiden. Keep reading. There's two more firsts. Verse 11. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has heard your affliction. There's another first. Write it down. This is the first time in sacred history that God names a baby, period. He names Ishmael, the first baby on earth, named Keep writing. The first baby God ever names is Ishmael, the father of the Arabs. Interesting, isn't it? Two firsts. All dealing with this Egyptian girl and her pregnant fetus. The fetus she's bearing. I got a name for that boy. One more verse. Verse 12. And he shall be a wild man. And his hand shall be against every man. And every man's hand against him. And he should dwell in the presence of all his brethren. And by the way, God is making a promise here. And I want you to make sure you get it. God is saying, I'm going to preserve that seed. I'm going to preserve that line. He will always be with his brothers. He will always be in their midst. There will never come a time when he'll be wiped out. I am going to divinely preserve him. Because he's the boy of Abraham. My friend Abraham. Isn't that something? God has divinely preserved the children of Ishmael. 
But that's not the first. It's verse 13. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees. For she said, have I also here seen him who sees me? In the Hebrew, El Roy. El Roy. You are the God who sees. Write this down, please. This is the first time in recorded sacred history that a human testifies to seeing God. Isn't that amazing? Is it coincidental? Three firsts. You just counted them. Three firsts. In all of sacred history. And they all have to do with an Egyptian who will give birth to a boy that will be the son of Abraham, Abraham's oldest. And I will preserve that seed until the end. He will live in the presence of his brothers. Wow. Is that just a coincidence, folks? Is it a coincidence? Or could it be? That God intentionally is planting the seeds of divine destiny in the story of the birth of Ishmael and the Arab people. And, given all of this, could it be, and I need you to really be thinking now, could it be, therefore, that in the dark hour of Middle Eastern history, 600s A.D., when polytheism raged through the nomadic tribes, could it be that the God of the universe, the God of Abraham himself, who longed to rekindle his light and faith amongst the children of Ishmael, could it be that Christ, the great I Am, personally raised up the earthen, earthen vessel of Muhammad to reinstitute monotheism? among those polytheistic nomads. Could it be that God Himself had a hand in Islam in the beginning? Controversial, isn't it? You don't want to say yes. Could it be? Is Islam in Bible prophecy? Martin Luther believes so. Isaac Newton believed and taught so. Joseph Mead believed and taught so. John Wesley believed and taught so. Uriah Smith believed and taught so. John Nevins Andrews believed. You know why? Because they are all of the great tradition of historicism. The historicist understanding said, yep, they're there. Islam is in Revelation. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we're not going to go and parse Revelation chapter 9. I do want you to go back, our last text here, go back to uh, Revelation again. We're not going to parse the fifth and sixth trumpets. There could be a time and a place for that. But I need to tell you that as we're going back to Revelation 8, that is the kind of the announcement of these last three trumpets. I need to tell you that the trumpets are really divine judgments on an apostate community of faith that is pulled away from the light. And it's God's desperate effort to get back, bring them back, bring them back. They're not the seven last plagues. They're the seven trumpets over the history of of the Christian church. These men who I just mentioned all believe that Islam is right there in the fifth and sixth trumpets. We're not going to go and read that, but I do want to read the introduction. So go to chapter, uh, Revelation chapter 8. Take a look at how these last three trumpets are introduced. You can go home and brood on this. You can go home and study it. It's what life is about. You have to mull this over. Revelation chapter 8, verse 13. And I looked and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven saying with a loud voice, Megalephone. Megaphone. This is not a whimper now. This is a shout. Whoa, whoa, whoa. There are three woes at the end. Five, six, and seven, those trumpets. Whoa, whoa, whoa. 
to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Now, please understand that I am well aware there are some who have chosen to interpret the fifth and sixth trumpets of Revelation 9 differently than did our spiritual forefathers. But suffice it to say that having reread and revisited this chapter from numerous commentators' perspectives, I am now convinced that Islam accurately fulfills the divine depictions of the trumpet-like judgments upon a community of faith that had wandered away from God. In fact, let me quote one of the great historians of a century or two ago, J.A. Wiley, in his magnum opus, The History of Protestantism. This would be volume one. You have the quotation, and in fact, you have to fill it in for it to be complete. When a, Wiley wrote, When a crisis arose in the affairs of the Reformation, and the kings obedient to the Roman see had united their swords to strike, and with blows so decisive that they should not need to strike a second time, watch this, the Turk, sons of Ishmael, Obeying one whom he knew not would straightway present himself on the eastern limits of Europe. And in so menacing an attitude that the swords unsheathed, they had to stop and go and take care of him. The Turk was the lightning rod that drew off the tempest. Write it down, please. Thus did Christ cover his little flock with the shield of the Muslim. There's unanimity among historians, that the Turkish Ottoman Empire's attack on Vienna, I've been to Vienna just last year, that great city of Europe, they surrounded Vienna, 1529, the very same year that the word Protestant was used for the first time in history. Charles V, who was trying to deal with this upstart, whatever is happening in Germany, had to turn his attention, go down to Vienna to handle the Turks, and when he came back, it was too late. In that interim, the fire ignited. And the German princes had already, the protest was in full bloom and it could not be extinguished by Charles V, Emperor Charles V of the Holy Roman Empire. Islam came at a critical moment to preserve something. God was growing to become a global movement. A little window of protection. Just a little window of protection. Islam provided that window. In fact, Kenneth Oster Middle Eastern scholar in his book, Islam Reconsidered. He might be a graduate of Andrews University. I don't know whether he uh, went here. You need to fill this in. He writes, there would have been no Protestantism had there been no Turk. No Protestantism had there been no Turk. Leading a contemporary writer today, Stephen Dickey, in his new book came out this year, Islam, God's Forgotten Blessing, to wonder, Dickey wonders out loud, if Islam even yet is an instrument in the divine hand to hold open a door that right now would otherwise be shutting, could it be that distracting forces in the east and west are keeping the door for God's final apocalyptic movement on earth, keeping that door open just a little longer? Can't deal with this now. we got big trouble on our hands. Listen, do you remember the story of Joseph? Come on, you know the story of Joseph. You remember when those brothers, apostate brothers, are so mad at him, they're going to kill him. They would have killed Joseph, but just then, some sons of Ishmael come riding up on their camels, and the boys that were about to kill their kid brother say, hey, wait a minute, why do we kill him? Let's sell him to the Ishmaelites, and he'll be off our hands. Do you remember that God used the sons of Ishmael to preserve a little remnant community and get them to Egypt where they could be protected with an impending crisis? Do you remember that story? 
Could it be that the sons of Ishmael have been used by God to preserve the seeds of a movement? Joseph and Egypt, Luther and the Reformation? Could it be? So that even as in the fifth and sixth trumpets, which Luther, Newton, Wesley, and Uriah Smith, and Andrews taught, could it be that the seventh trumpet, the third woe, might also be a return to using the sons of Ishmael for a final strategic movement of God on earth? Could it be? This much we can surely agree upon. The 1.4 billion adherents of Islam are surely the objects of God's tender solicitude. Wouldn't you say? Tell me the answer. Does God love 1.4 billion Muslims today? Tell me the answer. Of course He does. Of course He does. The glory of God, could it be that one day the glory of God is going to shine over that religious community as never before in history? Could it be that they are, they are to be the objects of our passionate praying and our fervent witnessing? Could it be? Which is why, by the way, I'm very troubled. When I hear Western leaders, spiritual or political, or Western talking heads, show themselves on television and in a berating, belittling manner, Speak of this religion. I tell you what, that is a grave mistake. Grave mistake. Islamofascists. They've invented a word now. Islamofascists. As if Islam has created this. I mean, may I just hit a timeout? How would you like it if the story of Ireland is told about Catholics bombing and blowing up cars of Protestants and Protestants bombing and blowing up Catholics? How would you like it if they called it Christofascists? You ever heard of David Koresh? How would you like it if they called them Adventofascists? Boy, when that Koresh happened, we were back so fast. Not, not us. And yet when this happens in Islam, no, it's all of you. I'll tell you what, ladies and gentlemen, our Western society sucks us into its way of thinking. The media does. And we are in danger of missing a golden moment to help the kingdom of God. Oh, I tell you what. Rome's recent negative critique, no matter how careful or sincere, has only compounded the Muslim sense of Christianity's anti-Islamic stance. Forget about Rome. Let's talk about evangelicals who are watching right now on television. Evangelical preachers who denounce the sins of Islamic terrorists and in the same breath extol the virtues of Israel, thus unwittingly portraying Christianity as anti-Islamic. It is all a mistake. And now I'm learning that there are Adventist expositors who are beginning to suggest that, in fact, Islam is a part of the Antichrist power at the end of time. Uh, that is such a tragic line of reasoning. You know why it's tragic? Because just like the evangelicals who point to Israel for where it's all going to be happening, you turn the attention to Islam, not knowing it's not from the East, it's coming from the West in the end. Do you realize that there is only... And I say this humbly, but I want to be forthright about it. There is only one community of faith on earth perfectly positioned to bridge God's final appeal to all three monotheistic religions. 
perfectly positioned to reach Christendom, for this community of faith is the heart of Christianity recovered in all the Bible truths. Perfectly positioned to reach the Jewish world, for this community of faith is Judaism with the Messiah. Perfectly positioned to reach the Islamic world, for this community of faith embraces the one God of Abraham and his teachings in the sacred books, championing the body temple of Allah, where neither pork nor alcohol shall reside, refusing to bow down to idols as other Christians might. Serving the poor of earth in works of mercy and praying morning, noon and night. In the words of Stephen Dickey, write that down, please. In the words of Stephen Dickey, how did he put it here? Any thinking Muslim will tell you that the Seventh-day Adventist church is the closest in belief to Islam. Oh, that we had a thousand missionaries. A thousand missionaries to turn to the Islamic world. Surely the Hanif, the Muslim faithful, would recognize the fruits of God. Surely the Spirit of God is opening doors to the Muslim mind and heart as never before. And remember, those doors only open for a little while. Just a little while. Distraction. Move now through that door. Oh, if we had a thousand missionaries, a thousand, who would feel the passion of God for the Islamic world... Look at that map again. Let me put that map on the screen. I'll superimposed over it. Listen to these words from the apocalyptic classic. Great controversy. You have it in your study guide. Servants of God with their faces lighted up and shining with holy consecration will hasten from place to place at the end of time to proclaim the message from heaven by thousands of voices. All over the earth, a warning will be given. Miracles will be wrought. The sick will be healed. And signs and wonders will follow the believers. That's Revelation 18.1. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with the glory of God that shines upon this civilization. If only we had a thousand missionaries, a thousand, to set the world ablaze for the glory of God. On this alumni Sabbath, let the appeal go forth. For a new generation of young missionaries with open hearts and minds to Islam, willing to commit their best energies to helping the kingdom of God reach this global community one last time. The children of Ishmael, the sons and daughters of Abraham.